Hold the Line with Mike Solon is brought to you by the Seattle Police Officers Guild, Seattle's public safety voice. Hey, welcome back to Hold the Line with Mike Solon. Today's show is action-packed. My apologies for not being with you earlier. It's been about a month since I released a podcast. But now, there is so much to uncover, unpack, get ready, all in the name of Seattle 2.0, reimagining policing. The line must be drawn here. This far, no farther. This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. We will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. Hold the So what does this Seattle 2.0 reimagining policing mean? Quite simply, based upon some news articles I'm going to put forth in the podcast directly to you to back up my messaging that I've been spouting for months now. It means less police, apparently no accountability from the top. All the activists scream is police accountability, which means line officers and sergeants but apparently nobody else should be held accountable for their actions. Welcome to Seattle 2.0. It also means everybody gets along. Crime won't happen. No, not at all. You won't be impacted by this. It means more Chaz Chop experiences, that failed three-week utopian exercise A failure, mind you. So let's break it down even further. May 17th, still relevant, a couple weeks old, from Q13. Seattle police say a fight on 9th Avenue North turned into a shooting Saturday night. 21 shell casings were recovered, and a 23-year-old man made his way to a local hospital, telling doctors he'd been shot in the alleyway. A stray bullet also ripped through an apartment building, missing the renters. South Lake Union has transformed into a tech hub. Now gun violence has also found a home. Seattle's starting to become one of those places where you got to watch out for yourself and be careful. In Lake City, two more people were shot late Sunday in a drive-by. The victims ended up crashing through the fence at Larry Wall's property on 31st Avenue North. The incident capped a fifth day in a row. Gun violence ripped through Seattle. Between April 17th until today, SPD says 19 people have been injured or killed by gunfire. The violence has touched nearly every major neighborhood across the city. Since the beginning of the year, SPD has investigated more than 100 reports of gunfire, injuring 35 people and killing seven. Thanks, Steve Kiggins from Q13. Another illustration of Seattle 2.0 reimagining policing run amok. That's just one of several that we're going to break down today. So isn't it stunning? Since January, 111 shootings impacting people in our community. And that was as of May 17th. As we all know, 2020 crime stats were historically high. A 50% increase in homicides. How's the defunding going for you, Seattle City Council? So how does this equate to the police reform bills that the governor signed not too long ago, 12 reform bills. What this means to you is that this piece from Q13, how crime is on the rise, it's another 
activist-led mission, if you will, to render police feckless, to handcuff us, no pun intended, for doing our jobs, which means your safety is in jeopardy. The biggest one that I want to just briefly talk about that, in my view, has negative impacts against just the fine men and women that do the job of policing, all for accountability, is House Bill 5051, the decertification bill. In my opinion, this is the activist end around in terms of police unions having the ability to get arbitration rights for our people. And if the activists get inside and they cherry pick what cases they want to decertify an officer for, then the odds of us being successful in arbitration are slim and none. Another shot against police. Yet crime is on the rise, courtesy of Seattle 2.0, reimagining policing. So what I referenced earlier with the police reform bills and the Q13 piece as far as the rising crime, our community members speaking out aghast of what's happening. Then we look at a national network, CBS News, that came into the city, contacted me to see if I could provide somebody that, could, that would go on camera to talk about the state of affairs in terms of policing and politics in this city. Well, we had a SPOG member, Clayton Powell, agree to do that interview, and he did a marvelous job. And I think the piece from CBS News was fantastic as well. But I want to paint the picture here. This isn't some type of conservative outlet. CBS is reportedly supposed to be mainstream. Um, We know that legacy media, in terms of how they've been described, has gone back and forth. But this piece, in my opinion, and I'll give them credit where credit is due, is I've been critical of media. But CBS News did a really good job on this. So thank you, CBS News, and the producer in particular, who I had a pretty good relationship with. So let's let this play out, and then you make your own conclusions. Does it reflect Seattle 2.0, reimagining policing? The state of Washington has just enacted a dozen police reform laws following nearly a year of nationwide protest over police brutality. And according to one social justice group, more than four, more than eight hundred and forty million dollars were cut from U.S. police budgets. That was in 2020. The Seattle PD is struggling under the public backlash. The police police the police chief there tells CBS News that 260 officers, that's about 20 percent of the force have left in the past year and a half. Think about that for a second. Carter Evans spoke to one officer who says the city does not have their backs. What's the biggest complaint among officers? Leadership. Officer Clayton Powell has served 27 years on the streets of Seattle. 30 years is kind of a pinnacle. It was my goal when I started. You're three years short. Why are you retiring now? The support that we had in my generation of policing uh, is no longer there. Last summer's protests over the killing of George Floyd led to violent clashes with Seattle police. Powell says the stress on officers was compounded by city leaders' decisions to abandon a police precinct and letting demonstrators, some armed, occupy an entire neighborhood for a full month. When you've got rocks and bottles and in some cases cinder blocks thrown at you and we have to stand there and take it, it's, it's discouraging. Were you told not to react? In most cases, yeah. 
when you see businesses get destroyed and families lose their livelihood because of that destruction. And we can't do anything about it. We're not allowed to, to intercede. You're not allowed to intercede? No, no. City leaders allowed the police-free zone after protesters were repeatedly hit by tear gas, but closed it down after weeks of violence. The real issue here is that for generations, our black and brown community members have been asking for more accountability. City Councilwoman Tammy Morales voted for a 13% cut in the police budget in November. We spend about $400 million a year um, on the police department. And as a city, we don't spend on the kind of things that could really support neighborhoods. Affordable housing, neighborhood planning, small business development. So you're talking about taking that money and approaching a systemic problem at the ground level now. Yeah. We're here to fix a broken system. The money the council cut from police will be reallocated through a still undefined process involving community members. In the meantime, is the police department underfunded to do its job while you're developing all these other resources? I would say no. If the crime rate goes up, is that acceptable? So if we're investing in communities the way we should be, then we can begin to address that. I inform Mayor Durkin of my intent to retire from the Seattle Police Department. After the council cut the police budget, the department's then chief, Carmen Best, retired early in protest. Interim chief Adrian Diaz took over. Does it concern you that so many people are leaving the department? so fast? You know, it does, because we saw our shootings go up, we saw our homicides go up. Does it slow down response time? It slows down response times. I had to get rid of, you know, our community policing teams. It seems like you feel like you're forced to cut the very people that protesters would like to see more of on your force. Yeah, I mean, I think those are so valuable. While Clayton Powell objects to how the city is treating its police force, as an African-American man, he says he understands the outrage over the murder of George Floyd and others. That could be me, that could be my son, that could be a relative, that could be a friend. There needs to be an understanding of how things got to be the way they are. But defunding the police, is that defunding, the way to do it? No. If anything, you need more funding. But that's unlikely. Another $5 million in police budget cuts are still on the table. For CBS This Morning, Carter Evans, Seattle. That's a very difficult situation. Yeah. I understand the outrage, but I also understand you have to have a police department. Yeah. You have absolutely. to have a working police department. The problem is you want to sustain the police department exactly. while you also address these other issues in communities exactly. and supporting those communities. You want to do both, which is financially very challenging. Chief right. has a big job on his hands. Yes, he sure does. Pretty good put together. Peace by CBS News Network National. Well done. Another example of what occurs when you defund the police, when there's no city leadership, and you continue to malign and besmirch the good people that do this job, where just a year ago, the mayor and the president of the council publicly applauded this agency as being that modeled, reformed agency for others to emulate. How quickly a year turns where our politicians turn and run and throw the good people that do the job of policing in this city when they target them as if we're the problem. So you saw some things in that piece, one in particular, 
they noted 260 officers have left. Well, I can assure you, based upon the latest information that the department put out officially, that there's about 270 now. And mind you, this CBS piece is not that old, about a week and a half to two weeks. And I can assure you, based upon my contacts within the department, people in the know, unofficially, but this number of separations or retirements is close to 300 people and climbing. All courtesy of our politicians and the activist class pushing Seattle 2.0, reimagining policing. Shameful. Also highlighted in that piece is what happened to the East Precinct. And the result of that and those riots obviously is troubling. And it puts us in a bad spot. It focuses on lack of leadership. It focuses on the public safety fallout, if you will, of losing a police precinct and allowing a mob of people to control six square city blocks for three weeks where five people were shot, all African-American, two of them dead. Basically, this incident spawned Seattle 2.0, reimagining policing, when just days before, we were the model reformed agency. Let's cue this one up. Former Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best told an assistant chief not to evacuate the East Precinct last June. In a new podcast, she says it was her command staff that made the controversial decision, which ultimately led to the creation of the CHOP Zone. Como's Matt Markovich has more on the former chief's revelations in this podcast. Matt? Eric, she made those comments in a podcast that was recorded on May 7th, but was released yesterday. And she spoke about a variety of things, but it was the issues involving the closure of the East Precinct and the conversations she had that led up to it that are going to get the most scrutiny. In a candid interview with the podcast Reducing Crime, the former chief restated her claim she did not make the decision to abandon or evacuate the East Precinct, and in a phone call told an assistant chief not to do it. So I said, well, listen, we are not going to evacuate that precinct. We're not going to evacuate the precinct. So cause I wasn't at the precinct at the time, so I didn't see what was happening boots on the ground. And that was, that was my last word. She hung up. I hung up. And like a couple hours later, it's like, they evacuated the precinct. I'm like, what happened? She said it was a command staff decision. And I think people question, why weren't they talking to you about it if you're the chief? And I said, I would have preferred that happen, to be honest with right. you. The FBI said there were threats against the building. Ten days earlier, a precinct in Minneapolis burned during a protest, and the fire chief had told the command staff a fire in the building that shared a common wall with the precinct could be disastrous. And there was pressure from city leadership, although she did not say who, to open the streets around the precinct that were barricaded. The city had really decided, to be honest with you, that we were going to open up those streets. You know, it wasn't our first choice to do as a command staff. I'm just going to be honest here. We did not want to open up the streets. The precinct was abandoned. The barricades disappeared, and Chaz and Chop was born. But, you know, the city 
The political will was not there to do anything. You know, the Parks Department is talking to people and they're digging up the park and putting a vegetable garden in there. Seattle Public Utilities is bringing in porta potties for these folks. And I think the mayor was quoted as saying the summer of love. And, and there was no one that I could really turn to and say, does anybody see how bad this is and how this is going to be a problem? But it, it wasn't there. It really wasn't there. She said it took the unfortunate death of Lorenzo Anderson for the city to take notice and do something about CHOP. Now, we, we asked for an interview, but she declined through her attorney, Ann Bremner. We also asked for interim police chief Adrian Diaz to comment about her comments and verify some of them. A spokesperson for him said uh, he can't comment because of pending OPA investigations. Reporting live in Seattle, Matt Markovich, Como News. Well, I'll comment quite telling that nobody else is going to comment for the record. You know, in terms of police departments in this city, and I think across the nation, but I'll just focus on this, this city. I love this police department. I love the city. The city took a chance on me, and I've been here over 21 years now. I love the citizens of this city. I love serving this community. This episode, this incident, will go down as probably the most troubling occurrences in my career. The riots, you name it. We were told time and time again to hold the intersection 11th and Pine. 11th and Pine is just west of the precinct, the east precinct. I was there during the battle of the East Precinct, if you will, working in uniform, although newly elected to the Spog presidency. Police officers, we follow, follow chain of command orders. Our superiors direct us how to act. Spog represents line officers and sergeants. Command has their own union but then you have the chief level that has a different entity that they belong to. We follow chain of command orders. For the life of me, I do not understand how in the history of my 21 years and the history of the chiefs that are chiefs of police, especially at this time, how they can say, I told people who were underneath me that we were not going to lose this precinct. And yet, somebody underneath her made the call to surrender the precinct. So just wrap your head around that. That is an example. If that was accurate, of what insubordination looks like, in a chain-of-command paramilitary structure. As a police officer, if you are accused of insubordination and an investigation is opened up to that in insubordination where you're an officer underneath, basically you're a subordinate of underneath one of your superiors, if you fail to act on a direct order, you're insubordinate. And what are the ramifications of being insubordinate? 
termination, you'll get fired. How can somebody underneath the chief make this call without the chief being aware? And more importantly, where's the investigation to that insubordination and will that person or persons be fired? We all want accountability for the line officers and sergeants. All the activists scream it. We need more. But guess what? This agency is one of the most accountable agencies as far as the civilian oversight structure in place in the entire nation. And yet they want more. Courtesy of Seattle 2.0, reimagining policing. You know, if you're a leader, you take ownership. You don't pass the buck. That's exactly what happened here. Now, I'm also in a tough spot, too. I actually had conversations with the chief that, that week on the ground, boots on the ground, as she references, in front of the East Precinct via phone calls. I also was in connection, communication with, mayor, with the mayor's aides on the predicament surrounding the intersection at 11th and Pine in the East Precinct. Chain of command was ordering us to hold the line, which is the reason why I named this podcast Hold the Line is because of this incident. We were following those chain of command orders. Hold the line at all cost. So we do that night in and night out, night in and night out. And what is the result? Hundreds of officers being hurt, City Council blaming us for starting those violent interactions. Totally false claim. I remember telling media outlets, I did a live presser in front of the East Precinct one of those days before the fall of the East Precinct. Telling the media that the East Precinct surveillance cameras captured these criminal actions by the riot mob late at night at 11th and Pine. Why doesn't the city make those public? Of course, nothing happened. And yet, the police are to blame. So what do you do? You're being ordered to hold the line. Spog members are getting hurt night in and night out. We're ordered to push the line. We use chemical munitions. We use less lethal, lethal... Excuse me. I'm so fired up I can't talk properly. Less lethal tools to push the crowd away from 11th and Pine, get them away from the East Precinct. We push the crowd all the way to Broadway, which is west of 11th Avenue. And we're not allowed to keep the area. And then so we back up, basically. We retreat. And what ends up, what ends up happening again? The line, the clashes start at 11th and Pine, night in and night out. We had bicycle fencing up there. Those were removed. The activists broke them down. We tried everything we could to hold them back to the point where we lost the ability, if you will, to use chemical munitions to hold the crowd back. CS gas is the only effective alternative to keeping them back. And, of course, some of the House bills that impacted, I mentioned earlier, The 12 reform bills, House Bill 1054, tactics, removal of equipment, highlights the constraints now with CS gas use. 
based upon the riots in Seattle. Again, more restrictions against the police. And so, at what point does the conversation had, then who makes the call? Why are we holding this line? We continue to get hurt. We continue to lose ground. When we do make arrests, when we book them into jail, they're quickly released. They're not held accountable, meaning the rioters, the domestic terrorists that are bent on maiming police officers. And yet we're told to hold this line to defend this precinct at all cost. But from the top down, it's somebody else's fault. And I remember having a conversation with the mayor's aide to say, you know, I'm so tired of our people getting hurt. We're not allowed to do our jobs. The people that we book into jail for their criminal actions against the police and the community during these riots night in and night out for the Battle of the East Precinct. If we can't do our jobs, then why the heck are we, are we holding this ground? You're making the police the target. Police are going to get blamed. But that's a tough conversation to have because as a police officer, you want to defend your works facility, that community precinct. But the politics, the pressure coming on down, us not being able to hold that line because of the politics, the optics, the use of tear gas, the use of less lethal tools, when caught on camera, doesn't look good, especially when the politicians are saying that we're to blame for it. But mind you, no blame is put on the criminal actions who started this from the, in the first place. So what do you do? Do you continue to have those skirmishes at the line? It's a tough political decision. That decision came from somewhere. And isn't it quite telling when you look at the news articles, now the mayor's office, the former chief of police, and the chief of the fire department, their text messages during that time frame for the Battle of the East Precinct and Chaz and Chop no longer exist. Isn't that interesting? But yet, courtesy of Seattle 2.0, reimagining policing, we need more accountability for the line officers and sergeants. What about command structure? We follow orders, and those orders go from the top down. Hold the Line with Mike Solon is sponsored by StopDefunding.com. The senseless trend of defunding police departments must be stopped. Over 200,000 reasonable citizens have already signed our petition, and we need your help. Visit StopDefunding.com and add your signature to help us protect public safety. Now more than ever, our voices must be heard. Speak up at StopDefunding.com. couple more will break down what is occurring. I mentioned people being arrested. We book them into jail. Then they're quickly released. In some cases, they don't even get booked. The jail won't even take them. But here's a sad example of what occurs courtesy of Seattle 
reimagining policing, how it impacts people in and around the King County Courthouse, which has been besieged with crime and homelessness. I feel so sorry for this community member, in particular, the loss of their companion, a dog. It's a story that is difficult to hear. John Hickey was on his daily walk in his downtown neighborhood with his dog, Alice, when the unthinkable happened. Hickey tells us he knows this area has gotten rough, but he never thought living here would cost him his best friend's life. She would cuddle up and wrap her arms around my neck. She's all I have, and, uh, and I'm not complaining that that was all I had. I mean, she was all I needed. It was Saturday evening when John Hickey and his Jack Russell Terrier Alice were walking past City Hall Park when Hickey says he was suddenly confronted by a stranger who demanded Hickey give him his jacket. And then he started telling me he was going to knock my head off if I didn't give him the jacket. Hickey says the man got more aggressive, so he pulled out his pepper spray and it seemed to work. The man fled, or so Hickey thought. I heard pounding of feet and I turned around and I mean, he was running full speed at us and I didn't have time to really do anything. I mean, I had her on the leash and uh, in running towards her, he knocked me down and he kicked her so hard that she went up in the air and fell down on her head and started hemorrhaging. She died in his arms minutes later. She thought everybody liked her and, and she was just proud of that. And uh, the most horrible thing, when she died, she gave me a look that just was like she was so confused that anyone would do something like that to her. Hickey was also injured in the attack and is now in a wheelchair. But the physical pain is nothing compared to the loss of his constant companion of 14 years. She was all my family. She was. I mean, she got me through days when uh, I literally don't think I'd have gotten up in the morning, except I knew she needed me and she knew that I needed her. Hickey was stunned to hear about the suspect's release from jail today. Seattle police say that the suspect is known to frequent this area, just feet away from where Hickey lives. Prosecutors and police say they fought to keep the suspect behind bars. In Seattle, I'm Olivia LaVoyce, Q13 News. So there you have it. Tragic example of Seattle 2.0 reimagining policing, where... Police track down the suspect, book him into jail, and he's quickly turned around and released. Had a robbery suspect, animal cruelty. I'm praying that that suspect is held accountable for his actions. One last piece I want to highlight, and we'll wrap it up. If a prolific pickpocket is added again, stealing wallets from passengers on King County Metro buses. Yeah, more than a year after Cairo 7 reported on that thief, a new victim reached out to us. And Cairo 7's Graham Johnson is live in Seattle this evening. Graham, that man wants to warn other bus passengers. He d Absolutely, Dave. He wants to uh, warn people after what happened to him here. He got on the bus here, the number eight bus, at about 6th and Denny. After a few stops, he realized his wallet was gone. These guys act quickly and it's really scary, right? 
Gen Sakura was sitting near the back of a King County Metro bus May 22nd when a thief stole his wallet right out of his front pocket. I was on a Zoom call, so my attention was on my phone, right? Bus surveillance images show how it happened. While I was looking this way towards the door, he it seems like he reached out and, you know, pickpocketed me through the uh, chair. King County Sheriff's investigators believe the pickpocket was 59-year-old Edward Malloy. Here's surveillance video from a Cairo 7 story in February 2020 after investigators arrested him for stealing a woman's wallet on a bus. Detectives called him a prolific pickpocket with a criminal history in several states. King County prosecutors say they've charged Malloy 10 times in the last 10 years. And I saw an article on Cairo talking about him, right? And I was like, there's no way it's this guy, right? I mean, he has to be still in jail. In fact, a judge released Malloy last October over the objections of prosecutors. He took more than $500 from my accounts. Ken Sakura discovered his wallet missing pretty quickly and called his bank to stop the cards within a half hour of the theft. But police say Malloy had already bought gift cards from Starbucks, Target, and a CVS, where these photos show him using Sakura's cards. Pretty all over the place, uh, shopping spree. Um, must be nice for him, right? Hey, he's found success in this pickpocket uh, technique. He goes in, whether it's a bump or a diversion or something, he's able to get his hands on your wallet. Sakura never noticed anything, which is why he wants to warn others. If this guy's out there, you know, you want to watch out. So in the referencing of the CBS national piece where Councilmember Morales was talking about removing the funds from the police budget, defunding, and then reinvesting in the community. Is this an example of reinvesting those dollars into the community where the community members as a whole are being impacted by crime? Another example of Seattle 2.0 reimagining policing, courtesy of our politicians and activist class. So in summary of all these news pieces as they're finally coming out, thanks to the media for illustrating the public safety crisis, which I've been screaming about for a long time, is sadly now impacting everybody's doorstep to a degree. You know, when we lack the political will from our political elected leaders. That type of direction comes from the top and then trickles down to everybody in our community. And when anybody who's politically motivated, who's elected into office, or from the political activist class, that small group of people who scream the loudest, when they spout anything with defunding or reallocating funds, Given all this energy around the crime that I just highlighted, courtesy of the criminals who were conducting the crimes, and the politicians that push this nonsensical activism as far as defunding are concerned, when this occurs, you will be impacted. I credit the media for, for highlighting this, and to wrap it up, Please keep doing more. We need an informed message put out by you to our community that paints the picture properly. Thank you for doing these.
and Q13's Brandy Cruz, one of her latest pieces on the divide, where she touts about the lack of political support from our elected officials as their decisions have impacted this police agency. I quote her by saying, Why would somebody want to do this job? Unquote. It's a good question. Why would somebody want to do this job? Given all of this lack of support and lack of leadership from our politicians and administration. Well, it's simple. We've lost close to 300 people. Many of those people have had it with this city's leadership and have moved on. And those that remain will continue to work on behalf of this community, the reasonable citizens, and the unreasonable people, that loud group of activists that continue to paint false narratives about the good people that do this job. We will still hang on despite this political chaos, this public safety crisis. Even with all these reform bills impacting us, we're still going to do our job, and we're going to do, we're going to hold the line. 